0: Our reading this morning is from the Gospel of Luke, from verse seven. Um, it's on your papers. First part is verses one to ten. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There was a centurion servant whom his master valued highly, was ill and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself for I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. That's why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed.
1: The next portion of the reading is from verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them." And then verse 44, Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace.
2: Before Nigel uh, comes to bring us God's word, let's just bow our heads and pray uh, to, to our Lord. Lord, I thank you for your word. Thank you that we have the opportunity to hear your word. Thank you that we can come here today and hear more truths of you, hear the good news. Please give us the ears to hear. Please uh, renew our hearts um, I pray that we will be willing to listen and to understand uh, your word. Please be with Nigel. I pray that you'll be speaking through him, that you'll give him the words to say. Please um, bless this time now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning. It's uh, really good to see you. I saw, ah, Aileen's here. No news yet. Matthew and Aileen are waiting on. For We've had our first wedding, so Mr and Mrs Evans are in the house. It's lovely to see you um, back from honeymoon. We're still waiting for our first birth. But um, hopefully this week, come on, Aileen, you can do it. We'll wait and see. Um, just this week, I was sent a link to an Easter film There's an Easter film coming out called Risen. I don't know if you've caught this. It's coming to Epsom, I trust, in the next uh, two weeks. And it tells the story of a tribune who is given the job to find the body. So apparently somebody called Jesus Christ was crucified 2,000 years ago, says the film. But the problem, according to the man who was looking after the area of Rome and Palestine where this happened, was that the body has gone missing. And so the film tells the story of what happens to Tribune, whose job it is to find the body. Doors are smashed down, followers are interviewed, graves are dug up, because this body has to be found or there's going to be a revolt. Joseph Fine stars as Tribune, and it's a fascinating trailer. I'm going to see the film, I really hope it's coming to Epsom. But at the end of the trailer, which I presume is at the end of the film, he smacks down a door, goes into this little home, and then his eyes meet somebody whom the camera does not show. He slumps physically against a wall, and then he says, It can't be. I don't know what to believe anymore. This tribune sees somebody who's been executed on a Roman cross and a short period later is sat before him and he says, it can't be. I don't know what to believe anymore. I wonder who he saw. His worldview has been uprooted. His worldview has been turned upside down. It can't be. I don't know what to believe anymore. He had faith in a world where one out of one people die. The man he saw had died, and yet there he was in front of him. Jesus died, and then God raised his son from the grave. It can't be. I don't know what to believe anymore. It's an issue of faith. And that's the issue in the heart of chapter 7. Chapter 7 of Luke's Gospel, as we journey through, we've passed through the Sermon on the Plain or the Sermon on the Mount. And in this chapter, we see two people at the beginning of the chapter and another person at the end of the chapter who are completely polar extremes of the social spectrum. First story, we meet a centurion who, at the end of this little account, verse 9, It says, I tell you, I have not found such great faith, even in Israel. It's a story about faith, the centurion and a story of faith. And at the end of the chapter, we meet somebody right at the other end of the social extreme, a a lady of the night, a lady of the street, a prostitute. And yet the chapter begins, verse 9, we could say, and ends, verse 50, with the same theme. Verse 50 of chapter 7, your faith has saved you. This is a chapter about faith and what it means. These two accounts are connected and the whole chapter is connected by what is faith? What does faith mean? These stories are connected and Luke is always deliberate and intentional. He's saying faith isn't just an emotion. Faith isn't something that just religious people have and other people don't. We all have faith. But saving faith shifts faith from being general, to being specific, to being personal and in a person. Faith is saving when it has a new direction, a new foundation, and is based upon a new attraction. Got that? Faith becomes saving when it shifts from being general to specific to being in a person. It's a new direction. It's a, it's a new foundation in your life and in your heart and it's a new attraction. That's where it begins. Let's look at those individually. First of all, faith begins in a new direction. Saving faith is a new direction. Look at verse 2 and 3 of chapter 7. Chapter 2 and 3, we meet the centurion for the first time. He's a, he's a wealthy chap and he's got servants. And the servant that he prizes so much, well, he's very, very poorly. And so he sends a delegation Interesting who he sends. He sends some religious leaders. He's that well thought of that he can just send a a dispatch of religious leaders to do his bidding. And he sends them to Jesus. Jesus, we need your help. If there's anyone that can help, it's you and only you. We want you please, to heal our patron's servant. Verse 4, this centurion is a patron who's built for the religious leaders, for the Jewish people, a synagogue where they can worship their God. It's really important we see at this point that the religious leaders who go to Jesus, they do not believe in him. It's Very important we see that. Chapter 5 of Luke's Gospel tells us that actually they want to kill him. And yet they go on the bidding of their patron. To see Jesus Christ, that their patron servant might be healed. So they go out of duty, but not out of any sort of delight. And look at how they go. Eyes down on verses 4 and 6. What's the difference between the understanding and the relationship the centurion has with Jesus, to the relationship and the understanding the religious leaders have with Jesus? Verses 4 and 6 tell us. Verse 4. The religious leaders who don't believe in Jesus go and say this. You should heal this man because our patron deserves it. Verse 4. He's worthy of your power to be in his life. See that? That's why they go. Verse 6. The centurion says, no, I don't deserve it. I'm not worthy of it at all. Two completely different worldviews being shown in the response that the religious leaders have and that the centurion has towards the person of Jesus Christ. And there's a principle here that we can see from this chapter that applies to each one of our lives. Here's the principle. The first principle is, is you can never disbelieve in God without believing in something else. That's the principle. Each one of us here, whether you're a Christian or not this morning, you believe in something. You have faith in something. You have a foundational layer to your heart and life that is trusting in something. If you don't believe in God, if you don't believe in Jesus, it's not because you don't believe, it means you believe in something else. If you don't have saving faith in Jesus Christ, it does not mean you don't have faith. Just means you have faith in something or someone else. Perhaps you've had a conversation something like this. Maybe it's with someone over the water cooler at work or someone at the school gate. Perhaps it's been a bit more personal, or even if it's been in, with someone in your own family. A conversation can go like this Ah, that's the problem with you religious sorts. No one can be sure that there is a God. You cannot be sure. And you religious sorts, you Christians, you're all the same. You can't be sure that there's a God. And that's a fact. But the problem is, as soon as someone argues in that way, they are revealing that they have faith in a different thing. They may not have faith in God, but they are revealing with that statement a presupposition, a foundation that's in their life that they are believing in. They are believing that there is such proof that God does not exist that you cannot believe in him. See the difference? One has faith in God, but the other person says there's no way that there's proof enough for God. But both are exhibiting faith. And that's what it's important to see. One has saving faith. One has faith that believes that God cannot exist and does not exist. One has faith that Jesus Christ never existed, that he wasn't a historical person, that Luke's account is not reliable, that the Bible is made up. But both have faith, and that's very important to see. You see, faith in the human heart happens very naturally. But saving faith, that's when God comes into your heart by his Spirit and redirects your faith so that it becomes saving faith in the person of Jesus. But we all have faith. We all have faith. And in verse 8, we see the faith of the centurion. Do you notice what Luke says? For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go and he goes. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. And he was. The centurion can say to Jesus, to paraphrase... I know that you're not just a miracle worker. I know you're not just an amazing physician. I realize that you have loads of power. I realize that you're a man under authority as well. You're just like me. And because of that, because Jesus, you have such a close relationship with God, you can just say the word and my servant will be healed. You see... The centurion could see in the person of Jesus a relationship that he had in his life. The centurions, they were the backbone of Roman society, I'm sure you might know that. The centurions were directly accountable to the generals, and the generals were directly accountable to the emperor. It was a, an ironclad chain of command. And yet the centurion can see in Jesus something, something very similar. The centurion does not say, I have power in myself. He doesn't say, I have authority in myself. But he does say, I'm a man under authority. And he says to Jesus too, you know what this is like. You just say the word and my servant can be healed. I realise maybe in yourself you have no authority, Jesus. We would disagree with that. But you seem to have this really close relationship with God, closer than anyone I've ever met or seen before. And there's another principle here. What does this show us? I don't know what condition you come to church in this morning, but this is very important to see. Friends, we all have faith. But saving faith is in the person of Jesus. And what that means is this, it does not matter about the quality of your faith. It doesn't even matter about the quantity of your faith. But what it does teach us is, it matters a whole bundle whom your faith is in. That's the difference. It's not the perfection, the quality, the quantity of your faith. But it is the direction of your faith that matters. And when God comes into your life, your faith is directed from something to the person of Jesus. And that's when it becomes saving faith. In our society, faith has become completely subjectivized, it's become personalized, it's become emotionalized, and lots of other eyes that I can't think of at this time. But when most people think of faith, they think like this it doesn't matter what you have faith in, what does matter is that you believe it with all your heart. It's called the hallmark attitude to religion. Just believe it with all your heart, as long as you don't harm anybody, as long as you keep it private, as long as you keep it personal, all will be well. As long as you're sincere in your faith, that's what matters. As long as you believe it with all your heart. The Bible says that's not true, and common sense says that's not true. I mean, think of um, Stalin... Didn't he believe what he was uh, engaged in with all his heart? Think of Hitler. Think of Pol Pot. They believed surely in what they were doing with their whole heart, but they were profoundly misguided. So here's the comfort once again. It's not the strength of your faith that is important. It's not even the quantity or the quality of your faith that matters. It's the object of your faith that matters. And saving faith is only saving faith when it's in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the good news of the gospel, and that Jesus Christ alone can save and does save. So, the mark of saving faith is not that you just believe in God, not that you just believe in a person called Jesus. You have to believe in him, you have to trust him, you have to depend on him. It's a verb. It's something you live your life upon. It's not just a noun. It's something that you have. Faith is a new direction in your life. But secondarily, it's also a new foundation. Look at the uh, centurion in this first incident and the, also the woman in the second incident at the end of chapter 7. Something remarkable that happens in both of these. The centurion, he was a virtuous man. He would be well known. As we've said already, verse 5, he was a patron. Verse 5 says he loves our nation. So he's not the typical Roman centurion that you might know. He's not a racist. He's not xenophobic. He doesn't kind of malign and mistreat and marginalise the Jewish people. He may well have been a believer. He may well have been somebody who treated the uh, Jewish believers well. That's why he Probably built the uh, the synagogue for them, but he's probably a Gentile worshiper of the biblical God. That's probably what this means. He's incredibly generous, at the very least. So he's a virtuous man. He's good. He's just. He's devout. But notice what is fascinating in this story is how he comes to Jesus. Remember what the leaders say, verse four: We want you to save his servant because he is worthy. So please do whatever he asks. But notice what the centurion himself says, verse 6. I am not worthy. I'm not even worthy of being in the same room with you. I'm not even worthy of being in the same home with you. Why should Jesus even listen to me? I'm not even worthy to sort of tie up his sandals. I know I'm a man under authority. I know I've got significance and prowess in the Roman army. But when it comes to Jesus, I can't even be in the same room as him. But the religious leaders come to Jesus with a different blueprint and a different paradigm and a different understanding of how to win God's favour. You can get God's favour if you live a life that is worthy of just like Rob said, uh, over in Kenya, Wills for the World. A tragic story of a girl trying to win God's favour with 20 shillings. If I give 20 shillings, and I will know something of God's power in the future. I will know prosperity and blessing. And here the religious leaders come and say, here is a man who's lived a, a virtuous life. He's built a synagogue f- uh, for us and for you. He deserves, God, for you to act in this way to save his servants. God's power will come into your life if you're good enough, if you're virtuous enough, if you obey enough, if you do enough, if you behave well enough. It's a religious way to understand God and his world, which makes what the centurion says even more astounding. Listen to what the centurion says I'm not worthy for you to do anything. I'm not worthy, I'm nothing. I don't deserve for you even to come in the same room as me. So why would you do what I ask? He's coming to God in a completely different way, isn't he? I'm not worthy, but you're all worthy. I want you, Jesus, to bring your power into my life in a completely different way that's not based on my virtue, my moral stature, my spiritual prowess, I want you to save my servant purely because of your grace. I want you to pour out your power into his life and to acknowledge uh, my devotion to you, but I want you to act in a completely different way that's not bound by uh, moralistic religiosity. Saving faith is not just believing in Jesus in general. Do you see that? It's transferring your fundamental, your basic life trust, your foundational understanding from where it is to the person of Jesus. It's not come to God saying, look at what I've done. Look at what I've built. Look at how I've cared for these people, your people, the Israelites. The centurion comes and says, I want you to treat me in a way I don't deserve. In a way that I've not earned. It's not about me. I'm going to build my life upon you. His faith is imperfect in so many ways, but Jesus' power comes into his life and his servant is healed. Because faith is a new foundation, It's, it's saving faith. He doesn't believe in Jesus in a generalized way. And, friends, that's what it means to be a Christian having your faith uh, changed in its direction, having your faith and your life built upon a new foundation, that's what it means to become a Christian. It's finding out that central foundational thing in your life and heart that you live upon, smashing it apart, and building a new foundation on the person of Jesus Christ. It's finding out that central foundational life trust and pouring it out and trusting Jesus for the first time pouring out whatever is precious to your life that you've built your life upon, pouring it out at his feet, just like the the woman did at the end of chapter 7. If career, if your career is the most important foundational thing to you, and you lose your job, it's just devastating. Because it's your foundational trust. If uh, human approval is more important to you, and you lose it or you get slighted, it it can be crushing to you. If it's finance and the footsie tanks, or again, you lose a bucket load of money, or your house gets repossessed, you can become suicidal because that's your foundational trust. I've quoted this before, but it's just so apposite to this about a new direction to faith and a new foundation to faith. There's a man called Nathan Cole. In 1741, he's in Connecticut, he was a farmer. And he hears the gospel proclaimed by a man called George Whitfield, who's a famous preacher. And he says, This, my hearing him, my hearing Whitfield preach, gave me a heart wound. By God's blessing, my old foundation was broken up. And I saw that my righteousness would not save me. That's the moment that God's grace comes into his life, that his faith in his own righteousness is smashed to bits by God's grace, and there's a new direction to his faith that becomes saving. He sees by God's goodness that his religiosity would not save him, and so he trusts Jesus for the first time. It's a new direction. It's a new foundation. What he was building his life upon was shown for what it is, that it would not save him. That's two parts to saving faith, a new direction and a new foundation. But there's also a new attraction, a new attraction if you become a Christian. This um, section at the end that we're going to look at more closely next week, verses 36 and following, tells a story of uh, two people, again, polar opposite. You meet Simon, who's a Pharisee, a religious leader, someone who knows his Bible well. And he invites Jesus to come and have a meal at his house. He wants to perhaps garner some religious favour, some religious currency. So he's the first character. The second one is a prostitute, a woman of the night, a woman of the street. Someone who recognises her own need of a saviour. Someone who's broken and sinful. And Simon invites Jesus in, thinking he knows who he is. And there's this parable that's told of these two debtors, verses 41 and 42. And Jesus, as he always does, pierces Simon's bubble with some telling words. Because Simon thinks that Jesus is just a prophet. A prophet who has come to tell him how to live right, how to win God's favour, how to uh, keep God's standards to a more accurate and salvific, a saving way. And Jesus comes and says, I've not come to tell you how to live right. I've not come to tell you how to behave in a certain way. I've come, Jesus says, I've come to bear the cost that you cannot pay. I've come to bear the cost of all the mistakes that you've made, all the wrong decisions that you've made, all the sins that you've committed, all the lies you've ever told. I've come to pay the price. I've not come to tell you how to live. I've come to save you. Simon couldn't see that, but the sinful woman could. This lady could see so clearly what Jesus was about and who he was. This lady, this woman of the night, this woman of ill repute, this spiritual lowlife, this social nobody, could see with greater clarity than this religious somebody. She could see somehow of what Isaiah was speaking about 800 years before. That somebody, a saviour would come who would be pierced for our transgressions. Whom God would lay on him the iniquity of us all. And after the suffering of his soul, he would see the light of life and be satisfied. Listen, because Jesus, he poured out his soul to death. And was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus poured out his life. And Jesus comes and says to Simon, "Following me is not just a new direction; it's not just a new foundation that you build your life upon. It is a new attraction." You see, Simon and the sinful lady come to Jesus on a completely different basis. One wants to keep the rules. One comes and throws ourselves at Jesus' feet. One comes just out of compulsion. The other one comes out of attraction and magnitude. Simon comes and says, I want to keep the rules. Just tell me what to do. Tell me how to behave. I think I'm okay, but I can improve some. But then comes the lady who takes the perfume around her neck and smashes it. And anoints Jesus' feet. And with tears falling from her eyes, as she sees something of God's majesty and grace, mops his dust-covered toes and feet with all the grime of the street on them. Because she senses something of the beauty and greatness and sweetness of Jesus that Simon doesn't see. Coming to Jesus is not just about compulsion. It's not just about Duty, it is about delight, it is about attraction, it is about adoration. Christian friend, is there something of that in your Christian experience? Do you come to Jesus out of delight or duty? Do you come to Jesus out of an attraction about somebody who has saved you? Somebody who knows you and yet who still loves you? Is it compulsion that you come to Jesus? Or is it an attraction to Jesus? Because if there's no attraction, there'll be no passion. If there's no passion in your Christian life, then there'll be no transformation. Do you come to Jesus out of compulsion or through attraction? Simon. Jesus may have said, because you've come not through attraction, there's no real foundational transformation. You're looking down your nose at this lady of the street, this lady of the night, as if you are somewhere, someone better. But she's let down her hair. Why is she letting down her hair? Because she doesn't care what anybody thinks anymore. Because she's attracted to Jesus. She has freedom of the light that you'll never know until you come to me personally. Friends, are you here this morning thinking, actually, I believe in Jesus, I know him, I know of him, and that's enough. But if you've got no foundational change in your very core, in your heart, in your mind, then actually you may not have come to Jesus personally, intimately, through attraction. It may just be compulsion and knowledge, just like Simon. Perhaps uh, the most practical response to this passage is this. If you don't see the absolute necessity of your best friend, Jesus Christ, laying down his life for you, pouring himself out for you, as your lover, as your closest friend, you're going to have no passion, no fuel, no fire, no zeal in your heart and in your Christian experience. You're not going to want to tell your neighbour in Epsom about Jesus, because he doesn't mean that much to you. He's just someone who's general to you rather than someone who's personal to you. There's no passion, there's no weeping, there's no tears, there's no freedom, there's no liberation. The centurion and the woman could see that saving faith, saving faith is a redirection of whatever you trust in, whatever your hope is in, whatever you're building your life upon, it's redirected to the person of Jesus as being the only one who can save you. I've not found faith like this in anyone in Israel. This is saving faith, verse 50. But it's also a new foundation, that you build your life upon the person and the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, seeing that your own uh, righteous deeds will not save you. And it's a new attraction, where whatever you have that's most precious to you, like that trinket around the woman's neck, you can smash on the ground and present to Jesus as an offering, because you understand that he poured his life out for you so that you will pour anything out that's most precious in your life for him. That's what it means to be a Christian. And then you'll experience freedom and attraction and amazement at the beauty of Jesus Christ. Do you know something of that? I pray that you will. Let's pray together. Father, help us please to not be like Simon who just understands you from afar, who understands you in a concept. Help us not to be like these religious leaders in the first account of chapter seven who think that we are good enough for you to act for us. We're not and we never will be. But we do want to give you all the praise and glory that you, out of your sheer grace, choose to be so benevolent to us, so kind and generous to us, We see that in the person of Jesus, that he's come from heaven to rescue us, from heaven to redeem us, from heaven to win us back. Help us please to be drawn, drawn and drawn again to the cross of Jesus Christ, that we would see his beauty, his loveliness. And that would change our inner motivational structure and how we relate and how we use our money and how we use our time. And how we speak to people and how we work and how we parent and how we relate to retirement in everything. And that would also drive us out to be a people on mission because love's so amazing, love's so divine, demands nothing but our life and our very all. Please help us to be more passionate about King Jesus, I pray. Amen.